Welcome to Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast where we discuss how the world was, is, and will be ordered. I'm Rachel Tausenfreund, GMF's editorial director, and I'm here today with Mayor Mitch Landrieu, former mayor of New Orleans and current GMF board member. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm also very happy to have Margaret Carlson, an esteemed American journalist and former GMF board member. Esteemed means old. (laughs) No, no, just means brilliant. Oh, thank you. So I wanted to talk today about identity and division in U.S. society and politics. I wanted to start with James Baldwin quote, which you probably know. An identity is questioned only when it is menaced, as when the mighty begin to fall, or when the wretched begin to rise, or when the stranger enters the gate, never thereafter to be a stranger. He wrote that in 1976. That's a beautiful thought, isn't it? It is, I think, a really good quote. And I think it shows an interesting parallel, I would say, because the 60s and the 70s were sort of the last time that we saw this kind of fomented hatred, intensity, and dissent in the public square. And that was maybe when the wretched were rising. And now we perhaps are facing the issue of a sort of a white identity politics because the mighty are falling. Is that where you would sort of position well, us today? I don't, I don't know that I would state it as starkly as he did, although he was a beautiful writer and had a great amount of insight. And secondly, I, I don't think it's something that is just specific to the United States of America. I think we get a little confused when we try to do it that way. I, I would like to think about it. When you think about Gandhi, or you think about King, or you think about any of the great peacemakers over time, from beginning till today, hatred as a seed, that separates people based on race or creed or color, sexual orientation, nation of origin, anything that people use to separate other people on the notion that some of us are better than others creates an environment that can lead to really complicated conflicts that can result in things like war or things like apartheid or the Holocaust or slavery. And those things happen over time. And I think that we make the mistake of thinking that, well, it happened in the past, it can't happen again. And we, we come to find out that actually can. And if you have a, a society in whatever country they're in where people are feeling left out or they're feeling not seen or they feel justice is not being done, the natural tendency is to begin to hate other people that don't look like you. And that's always a prescription for bad consequences. Mitch knows so much about this, and he's brought it to his post-mayor life with E Pluribus Unum, which I'm sure we'll get to. I had just a minor experience because I spent the last month writing a piece for The Atlantic about my grandmother, second-generation Irish, who was a hotel housekeeper. Not a radical person in any way. Her biggest problem was her invisibility. Black people all across society are like my grandmother invisible in many ways. And you have to talk about the 40 acres and a mule that African-Americans were going to get after they were liberated. Were they liberated if they had nothing? And if Jim Crow came into play? Not really. And we're still, we're living with it now. And it doesn't get all our attention. And people don't understand. They hear reparations. And that doesn't ring a bell with most people because it can be answered, say, by Mitch McConnell, who say, I didn't have anything to do with slavery. But Mitch has a way of pulling that out of the Mitch McConnell, not me, into it's all of us. And we have to find a way to make up for what our forebears did in order to get even in this country. It's not just a matter of recognizing that the country was wrong. It's a matter of are we living up to 
our ideals as Americans and are we being truly the great country that we have always aspired to be? Just think about it historically. This is not a radical idea. The Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights are basically wrapped around this notion that all men are created equal. All people have inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And some people in America would ask the legitimate question, well, is that really true? I mean, did we really do that? Are we really living up to our ideals? And I think if you talk to a lot of African-Americans in the country, they would say, well, we really never got that. We never got to that. The institutions that were designed were designed in a way purposefully and intentionally and sometimes through benign neglect to not give us equal opportunity and equal access. And even today, we're a very young nation. And one of the problems in the political dialogue, when President Trump says we want to make America great, comma, again, the comma again, if you talk to people in the South, there's a dog whistle to, I want to take you back to a time when we were great. And if you ask people, well, exactly when was that time? Let's specifically identify it. Was it 1850? Was it 1890? Was it 1920? Was it 1940? Was it 1960? Most African-Americans in this country will tell you those weren't great times for us, that there was never a time when we really felt like we had equal opportunity. One of the things I think our nation has to do, if we believe that everybody was created equal and that we come to the table of democracy as equals, and that we have equal opportunity, equal responsibility, we should ask ourselves whether our institutions and our laws and our practices actually produce that thing. And if we want to be great, if we really believe out of many, we are one, which is one of our national mottos, e pluribus unum, and we believe that everybody has equal value, are we really giving everybody equal opportunity, equal chance? Now, you also have the other challenge to this, which is white working class people now who were poor got left behind in many ways as well, not like African-Americans did, but we've, we've tried to separate whites and blacks, you know, by race so they wouldn't find themselves in common positions and being able to unite to create an economic system and a, and a political system that works for them, hence alienation. And when you have alienation, for whatever reason, whether it's race or whether it's poverty, where people don't feel like they're being seen or they're not being treated justly or the economic system is leaving them out when they should, then all of a sudden you have conflict. And that conflict, if people don't know each other, can turn racial very quickly and can turn into nationalism. It can turn into supremacy. It can turn into a whole bunch of things that are not constructive that don't allow America to put her best foot forward. Yes, America is a great country. Yes, we have a wonderful future, but we're never really going to do well unless everybody has a chance to enjoy what are supposed to be the benefits of the American dream. President Obama did a really good job of sort of communicating around this message of, you know, working towards a more perfect union. And this idea of, we've made a lot of mistakes, we're definitely not there yet, but but we can get there. We can sort of have a positive agenda. Margaret, you're a, you know, a keen political observer. Do you see the political class finding out a way to talk to the those who haven't been seen? Are they figuring out the lesson? Are they moving in that direction? Ironically, because Obama was our first Black president, he had to make an effort to be president of all the people and not be the black president. Now, just to go back, I don't know if it's a year, but Mitch gave a speech at the Gridiron Dinner in Washington. It's one of those spring rituals people outside Washington really don't like because they think journalists become too cozy with government officials, but it is a posted by journalists. Mitch gave the speech. It's a big night. You know, Mitt Romney did it. Obama did it. It can create a lot of visibility for yourself. So it was one of the great gridiron speeches of all time. And afterwards, everyone is saying, well, you are running, aren't you? Part of what 
Mitch has done is he's explained why Confederate monuments are wrong. And can can you just touch on that well, briefly? It's just, it's, if you if you are able to put yourself in another person's shoes and you were an African-American living in the South and you had to walk by a Confederate monument, which was a monument in reverence to the people that fought on behalf of the Confederacy. The Confederacy fought to destroy the United States of America for the purpose of preserving slavery. So now just imagine if you're Louis Armstrong or Wynton Marcellus or Mahalia Jackson or Barack Obama and you're walking down the street and there's a monument in place of reverence, which is to say we revere that person for what they did, but what that person did was to try to maintain slavery, you would feel uncomfortable. And so it's not just this, the, the metal, you know, or the, or the concrete or the monument, it's the symbol behind it and whether or not the idea that allows those things to stand still permeates the institutions and lifts people up and encourages them on. In a pluralistic society that values diversity, you go, well, that's just kind of weird. It just feels out of place. Now, there's a big difference between putting monuments in places of reverence, but remembering history. And we remember difficult parts of our history in museums so that they can be curated appropriately and the whole story can be told, not just some. And I think it's arguable that it's a good symbol for the fact that we don't really know our whole history in the United States of America. And the people that wrote the history books actually didn't really reflect the, the great diversity and the value. If you just take it out of the issue of race, which is really complicated for people, and put it in a complicated but less complicated, if you think about gender, it could be the same way for women in America who say, well, we had as much to do with where the country is today and where are the women elected officials? Where are the women CEOs? Where are the statues that honor the women? We're trying to put Harriet Tubman on a on a piece of, you Good know, luck with that. My, and then all of a sudden we're having this national debate over, well, you know, I mean, really, why is that who so bar- hard? Who buried that bill? Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, so just to put it in context, but one, one of the challenges that the country is having right now is not just about race. It's about how on the federal level, it, it, it occurs to the rest of the world that America's stuck. And what the world needs and what what I believe the people of America want and need and are thirsting for, and they'll voice this during the campaign, is some level of stability, some balance, and some certitude about what the future is going to look like because we're in a very uncertain time. And that's not a good place to be in if you want to create a strategy for the future and then create a pathway to the future. And we're struggling to just have a thoughtful conversation that's going to impact federal legislation. Now, because it's stuck, what you have happening is governors across the country, mayors across the country, council members, they can't just wait. They're beginning to actually figure out answers on the local level. It would be better in America that we would function as we would design, which would be the federal government, the state government, the local governments working in concert and in partnership with each other. And all working. With horizontal and vertical integration. Yeah, here's a radical thought. If we're gonna have a government, we ought to have a government that works. And we ought to have one that works for all of the people and doesn't leave anybody behind. That's a radical thought now, because that's not happening. It seems not so hard to conceptualize that we actually could be in a space where we have disagreements with each other about philosophy, but we don't hate each other, and that we find common ground on things that matter to us, and we agree to fight in a civil way about the things that can't, and then move towards some kind of resolution over time. We we don't have that now, and we have to restore that if we are going to restore some sense of certitude and balance, not only nationally, but internationally as well, which is critically important, by the way, to our national security on the homeland. Look at our president now who works actively to create division. He exploits the division you're talking about between 
the white working class, more or less in poverty, because if you make minimum wage and you have children, you're living in poverty, more or less, and African-Americans. He's exploited that division. That's what we live in now. I agree with that, that he does do that. It's not a new strategy. It's a strategy that's well-recognized. In the South, we call it dog whistles. What I'm saying to the American people is, once you see that and you know that, you have to call that out for what it is because it's not going to lead us to communion or to a better place. There are political strategies that people employ. One of them is, I want to win, and the way I'm going to do that is by getting 50% plus one. So I'm going to divide as much as I possibly can and hope that my half of the pot is enough to give me power. The other strategy that I think is is actually the right strategy for people that are governing is to say, if, if I'm running for president of the United States, or I'm running for governor, or I'm running for mayor, or I'm running for neighborhood leader, my job is to be the leader of everybody and to make sure that everybody is included and to try to build consensus and to try. Now, sometimes you can have arguments and fights, but if the notion is that I want to bring people together and I want to solve problems, it will move you into a certain direction. If it is, I don't want to solve problems and I want to divide because I want to maintain power, it will lead you into another place. Leaders across history have done this over time. It's pretty clear what it is that we have right now. So Americans need to need to choose. This is just not happening in, in the United States. It's happening all across the world. It's happening in Europe. It's happening in Asia. It's happening in Africa. There is a rise of what I would call nationalism and isolationism and inward looking. That's not the thing that has kept the world at peace for the last 70 years. How do you get people hopeful enough to join you. Correct. My experience on the ground is that people really want to work together and they want to try. Now, if you watch national TV and the issue is about President Trump, we're as divided as you can get. But this notion that somehow that rural is white and urban is black, well, that's just factually not true. The notion that rural America and urban America don't get along and don't work together, that's false too. In New Orleans, I'll use Louisiana as an example. We're a very rural state. We're a red state and a blue city. But the farmers in North Louisiana you know, rely on the, the folks in the city to buy their goods. I mean, when you come to New Orleans and eat this spectacular food, where do you think the natural ingredients come from? They come from the Gulf of Mexico, from the fishermen. They come from the farmers that are in, that are in North Louisiana. Um, the same thing is true about trade. People from the rural areas come into the cities all the time. Their children move to the cities. There's a symbiotic relationship that is not nearly as stark. So sometimes politics and the screaming that comes from the national team just does not adequately represent where we happen to be on any given moment. It does, tone and context really matters for leaders. And I would just, you know, ask all of the folks that are, that are leading to try to find ways to find common ground. I think the country is, is kind of lurching towards how do we get to the future? I think that they will tire of President Trump and in his style of governing. He's not the first leader to be like this, although he's the first leader to have this level of the bully pulpit of the presidency, but we've seen leaders like him before. And the American public at some point winds up getting exhausted, even if they like him, they'll get exhausted by everything. And they say, it's really, that was nice. That was a nice experiment. But can we, can we please start getting some stuff done that benefits all of us? Yes, if that's an anomaly, an aberration. As Joe Biden said in one of his appearances, that Trump is an aberration, and we will get back to the world that Mayor Landro is describing, where we do want to work together on the problems. Because you can look at the response to Katrina and the response to Puerto Rico. I mean, don't you just despair for those people yeah. 
in Puerto the, our citizens. Um, Katrina was terrible. People suffered miserably. But we were all Louisianans at, at that time. And we're not all Puerto Ricans at this moment. We forget. We don't pay attention. They're the new invisibles. Um, and you know, to, I long for that day, but it's hard to see it on the horizon. I tend to, when I was mayor of the city of New Orleans, I, I wanted to ask the people of New Orleans to not build the city back the way it was, to build it the way it should have been if we would have gotten it right the first time. Now, that's an easy sentence, but what that means is we got to do a deep dive and it's going to cost us more and we're not going to get the benefit till later. And generally in politics, people want to hit tomorrow. Mm -hmm. 30-second soundbite, I did this, I'm good, vote for me again. I think the country needs a little bit of dose of long-term thinking. I think we have to think about helping create conditions that will put us in a position where we can make good choices based on good options. That, that, that's a mouthful because maybe we ought to look at 2070 and- And work back. And work yeah. backwards and think about- What do we need to do today? What, well, well, let me say, well, let me just give you an example. I know that sounds insane to a lot of people, mm -hmm. but just to give you some timelines. It takes a lot of time just to build a new airport. So 50 years is not a long time away. And when somebody says to you, you know, we got this thing called climate change, and we're pretty sure based on the science that the consequences physically will be that some places will be underwater and other places won't. The military now has basically said we're at national security risk because of just our physical location of some of our bases, and we're not able to put our hardware someplace. So if you're interested in military protection or national defense, you would go, okay, well, I might be interested in, in, in that. What's going to happen to the land that we live on? If, if you knew that, or if you knew that as a result of the weather changing, that certain countries are going to run out of water and people that live in those countries are going to start trying to move across the land. If you can imagine the immigration fight that we're having now, can you imagine what it's going to look like later? Now, this denying that that's happening is like me as the mayor seeing a hurricane coming and know from my experience that it's going to get to us in 170 hours and not telling anybody to start preparing for it. If we don't start preparing for it, when it comes, being able to save people and then clean up after is so much harder than getting ready for what's coming your way, preparing for it and have a strategy to deal with it. So in that regard, we as a country really ought to have some long-term thinking framework to say, well, okay, what, what is the likelihood of our financial condition, our economic condition, our national security condition, and what are we going to do to begin to, to, to lay down really strong foundations so that we can respond to that and not just think, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it next year. Don't worry about it. We'll take care of it in two years. Don't worry about it because that's not a good strategy for winning the future. And the United States of America actually is in a better place today and, and really literally has been in the past 10 years than we have ever been to win the future if we could actually just come together around common purpose and not let us out, choose not to be ripped apart by the things that, that, that are different. Our, our thinking is shorter and shorter. And now we have one party that denies climate change and all it means for, and they don't even get to tie climate change to immigration patterns, but they don't even believe their own eyes in that, you know, the Republican convention was in Tampa four years ago Democrats were in Miami last night. If you're in Miami, you just only have to believe your own eyes. Correct. But we don't have the will right now as a country 
to deal with these problems. Well, why don't we take an easier problem that's not as okay. fraught as climate change? Give us change. an easy one. That Infrastructure. We can... Infrastructure. Right. Roads, easy, right? roads but, bridges, but, water but systems, President airports. President Trump walked out of the meeting with Pelosi <laughs> and but, Schumer in a snit. Correct. And he's, and he's wrong about that. So I'm talking about the, the ability of the federal government to wrap their head around the complicated problem that we all agree on and come to a solution that requires investments of money and a long time to fix. So you can use infrastructure as a good example of this. Everybody knows we have a massive infrastructure problem. I think there's a $5 trillion infrastructure deficit, which is to say, if you add up everything it's going to cost to fix all the roads, all the bridges, all the sewer and water systems, all of the airports, all the rail lines, you know, and then the waterways, which we need to compete against China and India because we all say we want it and would add jobs and would help the economy. It seems like a no-brainer. We can't even get to a resolution on that issue. Forget about immigration for a second or climate change or racial attitudes, which are all much, much harder. We have to, we have to force ourselves to be able to function as a civil society. And if we can't do that, how in the world are we going to compete not only as a nation, but how are we going to win the future? And, and what's sad about it is we ought to be lapping everybody in the world. We shouldn't even be having a conversation about whether China is a competitor are a threat to us, or whether Russia is a threat or a competitor. We, we've lost the last 10 years in this country because we can't come together and insist that we find common ground and solve problems that we know we have the answers to. And that, to me, is m a much bigger threat than whether or not anybody happens to be right on one particular issue. I like to say when I was mayor that if you could get the way right, you could get the thing right. If you can't get the way right, you can't get anything right. And I think that we've really kind of messed up our muscle memory and our politics about how we actually make things happen. And I, I would spend a lot of time on just the mechanics of governing and thinking about that but going forward. the way it takes people, yep. the right no people question. in office. No question, it does. So, so Mitch, I want does. you to step up next time. <laughs> so I had 30 all, years of it. There's that. We, we know what Margaret's one answer to fix these problems would be candidate Mitch. We've diagnosed the problem, at least part of the problem, is, is if we could get the federal government, let's let's say Congress, and let's even just say infrastructure, right, to, to take on some of the challenges that we actually know what needs to happen um, and get beyond the kind of short-term one election cycle. What would be the most important change that we could make to get there? Is it about corporate influence? Is it about media? Is it about the filibuster? Infrastructure is one of those things, as Mitch just brought up, that actually combines all those things Corporate America would love infrastructure, booming times, building bridges. You know, for about five minutes, the country was focused on that bridge that fell down in Minnesota. And a bridge falling down does focus one's attention, because what could be scarier? You're on the bridge. And we have a bridge to across the Chesapeake Bay that's one of the highest bridges. And I always think about Minneapolis when I'm on that bridge now. But it takes a kind of coming together that is hard to picture now. It's in everyone's interest. It's in President Trump's interest. It's in Republican senators' interest. And of course, Pelosi and Schumer are for it. But we are limited by ourselves, just ourselves. And the people in power cannot mobilize the country in a way that makes it uncomfortable for the people who don't want it to happen. Well, it does, it does tell you a little bit about how our federal system has become corrupted in the broad sense, meaning that it's not doing what it was designed to do. The process is, is either misdesigned or it's not aligned appropriately and therefore corrupted. Um, 
you, you have to ask yourself, well, if the American public, through polling or through other ways, is 65% in favor of a thing, why isn't Congress, who's supposed to be representing the people, in a position to actually deliver on that? And, and that means that the system somehow is not working the way it was designed. And, and I think we have to think a lot about that. Now, there are a lot of different reasons for that. One of them is gerrymandering and districts not adequately being cut to elect people that really represent that part of the country. Some of it are internal rules in Congress. One of them, it's affectionately referred to as the Hastert Rule, which means that a Speaker of the House will not bring up a bill unless a quarter, you know, half of whoever voted for them, says so. Now think about this for a minute, because the American people don't understand this. The American people think that because they're 435 congressmen, that what Congress does is show up in a room that somebody goes up to the front and says, I would like to have a discussion about infrastructure and we're gonna have this for five days and we're gonna take all amendments and then we're gonna, like at the family dinner table, come to some kind of conclusion and then we're gonna fish a cut bait and then we're gonna do, that's not what happens. Congress won't even take up a bill to discuss unless only a quarter of the people, now this is a quarter of the representatives of a quarter of the country deciding what to talk about. Well, nobody would do that. You wouldn't do that at your kitchen table. You wouldn't do that at the bar, you wouldn't do that at the restaurant. You would go, this is an insane way to conduct business. So that's one of the rules. The other is, you know, the way the primaries are cut. So there are a whole bunch of ways that we've gotten ourselves stuck. One of them is the filibuster. Who in the world thinks that it's a good idea for one human being that happens to be a United States senator to say, I fill in the name, don't want to talk about a certain issue so we don't get to talk about it and it can't come to the floor. Where, in what universe does that make sense? Like what family would let, I'm one of nine kids. If one of my brothers or sisters tried to do that, we would have a free for all. And so I think that maybe we wanna have different rules of engagement. And so there's a misalignment. It's not producing a good result. Then redesign it and fix it so that it does produce a good result or elect new people the so they can create a new system. The rule that we live by is named after a former speaker who's now in prison and serves no useful purpose and yet it cannot be overcome in our current politics. Some of us are hampered by civics class, how a bill becomes a law. And we still kind of believe in that. And we also, from Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and other movies, we have a romantic notion of filibuster, which does not obtain at all. So there are these fundamental things that you, you cannot get people to focus on the most boring right. word in America, in language process. Right. Yet we're crippled by process. I, you know, I, I did. I, I kind of challenged, not that I had any standing to do it. I've, I've never been in Congress. I've never been in the Senate and I am not of Washington. It seems to be an alien place to me. But I had this dream that the Speaker of the House, whether it be Speaker Pelosi, who I have great admiration for, or Paul Ryan, um, or Mitch McConnell, or Chuck Schumer, would actually for, like just have an, an experiment for America. And the experiment would go something like this. We are going to simultaneously ask all of the senators of America and all of the House members to actually go sit in their seats. And for 10 days, two five-day weeks, we are going to have open debate on the House floor about two issues. Pick any one that you want and let them vote according to their own conscience with open amendments and see whether or not at the end of two weeks they're able to come to a consensus that 65% of the Americans support. On, let's just pick infrastructure or pick immigration. Pick an easy one and a hard one. My guess is that if you freed them up and you didn't have any rules and you let them debate and let the country see the brilliance of a lot of people that are serving there and let them work together across party lines, 
whether or not they and could actually it on and C-SPAN. televise it. Let everybody watch it. Let everybody watch it. But everybody's got it. butts in seats. <laughs> butts in the seats. Open debate. All amendments. Ten days, and see whether or not they actually produce something. That sixty-five percent—that's the rule. Sixty-five percent of Americans have to agree on it. They can poll it. They can do it every day. And my bet is that they're gonna—they would show the country that they actually could work. But this you got to open it up to debate. Good for democracy. Be terrific. And good for podcasts. Beautiful. And by <laughs> the way, a lot of politicians would become stars overnight because you would see that they're really some smart people that feel hampered by the the Democratic primaries or the Republican primaries or being afraid of the president or whatever the heck it is. American, most American people don't self-identify as, oh, I love any one of the Democratic candidates or, oh, I hate president. They just want something to happen. Now, because they can only express themselves in view of I'm for Trump or I'm against Trump or I'm for whoever's running for the Democrat or against them, that's not the way people normally think because what they're worried about is getting to work having a, a great paycheck, being able to take care of their kids, giving their kids a better life than they have, and getting something done. You because know, we got to get better. If you better. go to an airport abroad, and then you go to oh my goodness. LaGuardia, you know that we've fallen behind. Or the rail lines. Yes. Why, the ability why to move the people. The is our grand achievement on the East Coast, and yet it's falling apart. We do not have a good train system. We do not have a good mass transport, which is why voters are sitting in their cars hours and hours, and would love infrastructure. Somebody, like Jay Inslee is running on climate change. He's got a single issue. He's the governor of Washington. Good issue. Godspeed. Run on how people's daily life, just take the four things of daily life that are driving people insane and run on it and say, but we can fix it. You know, these are terrible things, but we can fix them. But we don't get down, we don't go granular back up. Correct. We're like way up here. Oh, Democrats, open borders. Republicans killing children at the border. We're not coming together in a way that everybody wants to fix that. Everybody we know that's not in Congress wants to fix that. Well, there's something that's stopping them from talking to each other. And I just have this crazy dream. I know it's naive, but it, it would be great if, if Nancy so Pelosi naive. and Chuck yes. and, uh, and Mitch McConnell would meet and say, look, for the next 10 days, we're going to open up this government. It's going to be transparent. Everybody's coming into work. Everybody's sitting down. They could do it if they let themselves do it. But it requires leadership to say, you know what? Our bases are going to yell. They can yell all they want, but we're going to confect something at the end of the day that over two thirds of the American people support. So as I said at the beginning, a mayor has to produce and show that things can get done or he doesn't get reelected. And that's what that's what Mitch did. If we had more people running who'd actually been at the granular level, who had a sense that you can actually get things done. It's a dispiriting time. This election is dispiriting in that there's not this great, the hope and change of Obama doesn't that seem a hundred years ago? I'm not. I'm not dispirited by it. Actually, if if you look at it in a broader view, and it's hard to do this with President Trump in the way because he's he's like the elephant in the room. But if you think about the Republican bench that he beat, the 17 people that he beat. Now, I didn't agree with most of what any of those guys said, although I didn't completely reject it. There were 17 fairly capable people on that stage that President Trump beat. The Republican bench was deep. And there are other really good qualified Republicans out there who I may disagree with, but are, you know, really thoughtful people. And then you look at the Democratic bench, you think, you know, there actually are a lot of 
folks out there. Now, people haven't even scratched the surface on the good governors and the good mayors there are out there in the country. So I'm actually, I am optimistic about but the you, future of our country. But you wish, don't you, that there were more governors or mayors? Yeah. Because people in Congress don't have the muscle memory of getting things done and bring, having to bring people together. Well, I don't want to- Or don't. just the same sense- if there was a way to make them equally as well, accountable. Uh, yes. Because mayors can't are accountable. Yes, that's true, but, but Mayor Pete's- A vote doesn't make you accountable. That, that's correct. I, I, I agree with that, that being a congressman and being a senator who are ostensibly representatives, who argue about what should be done, but are not executives and are responsible for getting the thing done, create different muscle memory. Most people are not paying attention to this, this simple fact that there are a number of different mayors that are actually in this race. Bernie Sanders was the mayor of his city before he became a senator. John Hickenlooper was the mayor of Denver before he became the governor. Oh, of, good point. Of, yes. Yes, yes, of Colorado. Cory Booker was the mayor of New Newark. Jersey, Newark, Newark before yes. he became, so there are five, I think there are five mayors that are running. So they don't not possess the sensibility, but the ones that are working on the federal level have gotten themselves into a system that is designed not to produce. Now, there are some people who are rock rib conservatives who say, you know what, that's not a bad thing. George Will, I think, may say, well, I'm not that upset that the government's not doing a lot. It's actually designed to go slow. Well, that may be true, but it's not designed not to time, function. I like gridlock. Well, but, but be that as it may, but it's not designed to not function or to not do what it's intended to do. Those are different, those are quite different things. Checks and balances don't mean status. I mean, meaning don't move, can't get anything done, don't solve a problem. Most of the world lives in a space, if you're a mother or father and you have kids, you know, or you don't have children and you're trying to get to work, you have problems that you just have to solve. You never leave them not solved. That aggravates you, you wanna solve it. And so when you can't solve it, then you begin to feel weak or you begin to feel not in control. Then you feel like, well, nobody's listening to you. That creates alienation. And America is a can-do nation. And I think that we've, we've lost a step in that. It doesn't have to be lost forever. Clearly, we can get our game back. But the bigger question that I would ask ourselves is why are we now struggling to win the second decade of the 21st century when we should be clearly ahead? Why did we lose so much ground so fast? What did we do as a country? And that's worth thinking about as an American much less as from a Democratic or Republican perspective. Why are we where we are? Are we here by accident? Are we here by purpose? Are we here by design? I mean, we, we're not in a place where we want to be. And if you think about it, with the economy being so good, and if you think about the fact that, yes, we have troops abroad, we are not in World War I, World War II, the Korean War. We're in a good position now to win the future. And why are we not able to come together as a country to do that? Now, I think that's worth thinking a lot about. People ought to spend some time thinking about what their personal role is in that, not just blaming the politicians, because sometimes big message to the people of America, sometimes politicians act the way their constituents want them to. And I think that, you know, we, we're going to find our footing again. I think it's just a painful process that we're going through, but I think we're going to be okay. Very painful. I arrived a pessimist. I am going to leave an optimist, at least for a time. Cautious optimist. So I thank Mitch for that. Thank you, Margaret. Yeah, You're very kind. And I learned how to pronounce New Orleans. Not New Orleans. <laughs> no, New don't do that. New Orleans. <laughs> yeah, I New think Orleans. I have it. New Orleans. New Orleans. <laughs> and we're going to leave with some cautious optimism. Thank you very much, Margaret. Thank you very much, Mary Mitch, Thank for you. joining me. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast. The show is produced by Zachary Tarrant and me, Sydney Simon. 